Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life and Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Cara tonight. And our topic is Choose Life. It's interesting to me how Scripture uh, communicates that we have freedom. It, it, we'll read in Deuteronomy, it says you can either choose life or choose death. You can choose blessing or cursing. It seems like there wouldn't be a huge... Like, is that sort of a no-brainer? Like, would you rather have life or would you rather have death? Uh, so it's putting it in quite a strong way. And yet there are a lot of religious theories that say that we don't have free will, the Lord has just done things for us. Why would we be told to choose life? Why would that be up to us? And how do we know what life is and how do we choose it? So if you'd like to come on board with that, do join us, good friends. And shall we start with a prayer? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we thank you for bowing the heavens and coming into the world. You are the Word made flesh. We seek you, Lord. We seek your coming in the pages of your Word, in the clouds of Scripture with power and great glory. We pray for your presence among us this evening, and we thank you for gathering us in your name. Amen. Amen. Sending love to people who are out there online and others who are getting the audio and so forth. So choose life. Let me read something about who we are. Haven't done that for a little while. Spirit and Life Bible Study looks at the Bible through a Swedenborgian lens, meaning in alignment with the teachings of Emanuel Swedenborg, 1688 to 1772. The name Spirit and Life comes from something Jesus himself said. He said his words are spirit and they are life, John 6:63. Spirit, which we take to mean that his words have a spiritual and heavenly meaning and purpose, and life, meaning that his words are alive and aim to bring us to life by teaching us how we are to live if we wish to become spiritual and heavenly. And since Jesus is the Word made flesh, John 1.14, what he says of his words applies to all the words of the Bible. They all teach who he is and how to get from hell to heaven. All right, choose life. Let's dive right in, shall we? Let's go to Deuteronomy. So that's the fifth book of Moses in the left of your Bible. And we're going to chapter 30, where this statement is made in quite a striking way uh, by Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 30, and we'll start at verse 11. So this is Moses talking to all the people. Looks like he's been talking to them for a while. For this commandment, which I command you today, is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. Mm. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. I just love that. Go on. <laughs> nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. No. But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. Mm. See, I have set before you today life and good. Life and good. Death and evil. Okay, life and good. Interesting, isn't it? So I don't think it's just talking about mere physical existence or something. It says life and good, death and evil. Those what, so in other words, evil is in some sense a choice of death. And you see this going all the way back to the beginning, don't you? The idea that Adam and Eve will live, but after they've eaten, uh, there's a sense that death comes into the world after eating of the fruit. Uh, 
but it's about good and evil. So life equals good, death equals evil. Well, there, you know, from some perspective, you would say, well, you know, obviously you'd want to choose life. Like, isn't that a no-brainer? And go on. What is he saying? In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. Oh, live. Okay. Wow. Okay, so that's saying that if we follow his commandments, we will live and multiply. Okay. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. Yes. Go on. But if your heart turns... If, that's right. If, but... But, if... if your heart turns away so that you do not hear mm. and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them. I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. Mm. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. Uh-huh. Here it comes. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death Blessing and cursing. So there's a different way of putting it. So good is aligned with blessing. Evil is aligned with cursing. Uh, so I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. And then what's the advice? Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Yeah, as far as I know, it's the only place in all of Scripture that it says that particular phrase. But it's a very striking phrase. Choose life. Choose life. And it says that both you and your descendants may live, and just read out that last verse in there. That you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him. Why? For he is your life and the length of your days. Such a beautiful phrase. He is your life. So when it says choose life, wouldn't that translate immediately to choose me, right? Mm -hmm. The Lord says. Mm -hmm. He says, the Lord, is, your Lord your God is your life and the length of your days. Go on. And that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Now, just to make this very clear for people who might be new to this approach to, to the Bible, uh, what the land, what we take the land to mean, that everybody is in that bracket of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, in other words, we're all in that same boat, that this is God talking to all of us, and that the land which we will get, and these reference to the length of days and so on, isn't about some physical piece of dirt on this planet. It's talking about heaven. That's what it's talking about and being able to go to heaven. And so spiritual, it's talking about spiritual life in heaven versus spiritual death in hell. It doesn't mean just the physical cessation of life, you know, with physical death or something. Uh, life and good or death and evil. So I find that very intriguing that the Lord would say, choose life. Like, if the Lord had just done things for us. Uh, well, let's take one example. Uh, there is a view in our world, is there not? Uh, some people believe in predestination. They believe that God predestines people and that he predestines some people to heaven and some people to hell. Now, it's hard to reconcile that, to my mind, with a statement in Scripture that says, choose life. What on earth difference would it make what you chose? Like, doesn't predestination imply you don't have a choice? 
God made the choice for you. You don't even know what he chose. You don't know where you're going and you have nothing to do with it. To me, it's kind of a debilitating philosophy. I know to some people who embrace it, they think, oh, well, it's all about the power of God. You know, isn't that really adoring his majesty that he's so powerful that he's the whole source of whether you go to heaven or hell? But it doesn't make sense to me and it doesn't make sense to me how scripture would say choose life to just command people like this makes much more sense that human beings are free, that we have free choice and that the Lord has laid it all out. And he says, you have free choice. I'm going to command you what to choose. And most of you won't do it. But I'm still going to tell you what my choice of your choice is. You know, if it was up to me. I'd say, why don't you choose life? I think that'll be better for you. I'll enjoy it more. That's the way I'd like it to work out. But it's a little hands-off in the sense of just like, hey, it's up to you, you know? All the Lord is doing is saying, well, here's life and blessing and good and all that. Here's death and cursing and evil. Uh, I would strongly recommend that you pick column A, uh, but knock yourselves out, you know, whatever is your, your choice, whatever you want to do here. But he also tilts it a little bit by saying, if you choose this other, just know that you're choosing death and evil and, and hell. And, uh, you know, that's what, that's what you're choosing there. And so I recommend that you choose life. So to me, just in those two words, choose life, choose is a command. Um, it's implied that we have free will, that we have a response, and that it's begging us to make a certain kind of response, but it's not controlling whether we make that response or not. That's up to us. And so let's explore uh, in a bit what would that mean? How would, you, how would you choose life? It says do the commandments and things like that. But what, what does life look like? What are we talking about? Could you turn to the right good friends and we'll go through Joshua to the book of... No, actually we want Joshua. We want Joshua chapter 24 toward the end there. Because there's a similar sort of passage. Um, hmm... Hmm. I think, what would you think, dear reader, about reading quite a bit of this? So we just start sure. at the beginning of chapter 24. Sure, sure. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers. And they presented themselves before God. Joshua is the person who took over from Moses. So who we were hearing in the last one was Moses passing on God's plea with the people. Then he died, and then Joshua took over. Now Joshua, here's the end of the book of Joshua, and he's talking to all the people. Go on. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, uh -huh. and they served other gods. Oh. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau, I gave the mountains of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Yes, yeah, a familiar story. Also, I sent Moses and Aaron and I plagued Egypt according to what I did among them. Afterward, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers uh -huh. with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. Mm. So they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, 
brought the sea upon them and covered them, and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites, who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan, and they fought with you. But I gave them into your hand that you might possess their land, and I destroyed them from before you. Yes, and there's more about this, all the enemies they fight in verse 11 and so forth. And now in verse 13. I have given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. Okay, and so this is an image of the, the whole story of the Old Testament. It's about how the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt and then they got out and that these former gods that they worship, they've gotten away from that now and they've formed this relationship with the Lord. So here we go in this next verse. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord. What a statement. So just before we heard that it's good to serve the Lord, you know, that's good, that's blessing, that's life. But here it says, well, if it seems evil to you, I mean, it admits, right? It could seem evil to some people to follow the Lord. Like, I just don't want to. I don't choose to. I have a choice. I don't want to do it. It seems bad to me. I'll feel bad or something bad will happen. I don't want to do it. So he gives him a choice. It says, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river okay. or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Yeah, so the old gods that your ancestors had or the gods of the people who used to be here that you've now kicked out. And then Joshua says a powerful thing. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Yes, so he, Joshua's making a choice. And he said, I mean, if it seems evil to you, he doesn't say, don't do it on pain of death, don't do it. You know, he just says, hey, if it sees evil to you, just choose which other gods you're going to serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That ringing kind of phrase. So let's listen to this interaction with the people. It's kind of fun here. So the people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. So obviously he was, he was trying to sort of provoke them into, no, no, you know, protesting and saying, no, we're really on board. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the ways that we went and mm. among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites, who dwell on the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Yes. So it's a great answer. It's sort of like, well, I'm not going back to those old gods. I don't know if you can relate to anything in your life, friends, whether there were things that you were pursuing when you were younger or whatever that were just, you know, blind alleys or something. And so Joshua is saying, look, do you want to go back to that? Or do you want to stick with the Lord, you know? And they're saying, well, we're not going back to that. That was terrible. You know, you let us out of that. You kept us safe. We're bonded with you now. You're our God. So what does Joshua say? Does he say, that just warms my heart. Thank you, everyone. What does he say? <laughs> but Joshua said to the people, 
You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. Yeah, and so <laughs> rather than saying, good answer, <laughs> he says, you can't, you're not, you can't do it. You're going to suffer. It's going to be bad, I'm telling you. And what do the people say? The people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. That's right. And so what does Joshua, so Joshua say now? Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves. And he said, I, I didn't tell you to do it. I didn't force you. You had a choice. You could go back to the other gods or whatever. You said, no, I really want this. And then I said, no, you don't. And then you said, yes, we do. <laughs> so <laughs> go on. You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. Yes. And they said, we are witnesses. Yes, we, yes, we are. We're witnesses. Now, therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. Mm. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Uh-huh. Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us, uh -huh. for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. This stone heard everything, heard what you said, heard what I said, heard all these words, right? It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. So Joshua let the people depart, each to his own inheritance. Yes, we'll stop there. But I sort of enjoyed that inter interchange because it's sort of like, look, you got to choose today whom you're going to serve. No, we're in with the Lord. No, you're not. Yes, we are. No, you got to be serious about this. We are serious. You know, so he has this whole exchange with them and then makes them do a covenant. And then he writes the words in the book of the law. So now there's like a contract, you know, like, like we've, we've all agreed this is what we're doing. So again, why do I bring that up? It's about choosing. You know, choose today who you will serve. We have a choice. Um, so, okay, where I'd like to go next is to Luke, all the way in the New Testament, the third of the four Gospels there, uh, to chapter 14. Uh, because Luke, a lot of Scripture is about this choice. And there's a passage in Luke that came to mind because it talks about what a very serious, it's actually a serious choice. I mean, it's something to really be weighed and considered. You know, how we're living, what, what sort of eternal life do we want for ourselves? Let's have a look at this. Uh, start at verse 25, if you will. Chapter 14, verse Of 25. Luke, okay. yes. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Okay, now that's, that sounds a little more pricey, doesn't it? Like, um, uh-oh, you know, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, well, it might seem evil to you to serve the Lord if that's what you had to give up. You know, we have to give up family, relationships, and everything. 
And if you're up to speed with Swedenborg's idea, the father and the mother have to do with these, you know, the, the love of self, love of the world, and your former ideas and all that, the children, brothers, sisters, and your own life, meaning the life of your own lower self, uh, you can't be the Lord's disciple. So he's talking about the price. It's not a trivial sort of, oh, sure, I, I want something good. I want blessings. Well, it's, there's a cost. Go on. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. As some of you may have heard me say before, this must have been an amazing statement because the Lord didn't have a cross yet and they had no idea that he would have one. What's he talking about? But he says, you have to bear your cross. It's a little frightening, like, oh, really? Is that, wow, that, that sounds kind of costly. And listen to this. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost? Count the cost. Whether count he, the cost. Go on. Whether he has enough to finish it. Yeah. Don't get a quarter of the way into this thing and then chicken out. I mean, if, you, if you're with me, you got to be with me, you know, says the Lord. I, I don't want something that's sort of halfway or something. And read on. Lest what would be the alternative? After he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. <laughs> yeah, an idiot, you know. Um, yes, you've got to really think about it. Are you going to be able to finish this thing? And he says it right after he says you've got to give up everything, right? Mm. He said, if you, if you come to me, You've got to be ready to give up everything. You've got to be ready to bear your cross. It says, which of you doesn't sit down first and count the cost? Make a projection of how much, what is this going to cost me? So he's talking about how much it's going to cost us to follow the Lord. And uh, what about verse 31? Or what king going to make war against another king mm. does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Yes. Do you have the troops? What king? If you're building a tower, don't you sit down and figure out, well, I don't want to run out part way, you know, run out of cash or something, not be able to finish. That would be dumb. And what king sits, you know, before you decide to make war, isn't he kind of implying that there's going to be some warfare involved in making this decision? This is not all just going to be smooth as glass. Uh, what king going against another king? Isn't that like the, the good self and the evil self or something? These two kings. If you're going to really attack this thing, don't you sit down and figure out, well, I've got 10,000 soldiers. He's got 20,000. But they're poorly trained. We could get on a height. We could use this. We could, you know, you got to kind of, you don't just sort of, well, let's just charge in and see how it works. You know, you've got to really think about what, what you're doing here. And or else, what's the other choice in verse 32? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. Yes, right. If you know you're going to get whooped, uh, don't go in there and destroy your whole army. Send somebody out and make peace with them. Say, yeah, right. I'm sure we can come to terms that we can agree on. And, uh, you know, because you realize I'm not going to make it. I, I don't have I don't have the troops to tackle this this person. So what's the likewise there in verse 33? 
So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Yes. Mm. So he's talking about a pretty high price, and he talks about it being a serious choice that you have to sit down and weigh. Am I willing to give this up? You know, this precious evil that's in my life or this pattern that I've always had that feels so familiar to me or, or whatever, you know, we really have to weigh the cost. It's not just a trivial sort of a decision. Uh, even more frightening, perhaps, can you turn to the left and go to Matthew chapter 7, is this well-known statement, 7 verses 13 and 14, toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Oh. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Yes. Isn't that about the same subject that you're talking about? Are you going to head for hell? Or are you going to head for heaven? If you head for hell, the one advantage is you'll have lots of company. Uh, Swedenborg explains about this passage that the only reason it's not that the Lord set it up that way, that the pathway to hell is huge and well-paved, well-lit with a lot of rest stops and so on. And then you've got this little tiny dusty path that leads off to heaven where there's nothing to eat or something. Uh, the reason those paths are that way is simply because of the number of people going in that direction at that time that he was talking about. Um, that that other way will get larger just as any path will that you tread in this world when more people go on it. Uh, but again, he commands us. He gives us his choice. He says, go in the narrow gate, you know, do go the extra mile, do the difficult thing, go in that narrow gate. Uh, the other way, it may be well paved, it may be spacious and everything, it leads to destruction. You know, and there's many people who are going towards destruction. Uh, where does the other one go in verse 14? Leads to life. It leads to life, yeah. Choose life. So part of choosing life is to go in that narrower way. It may be difficult. There will be sacrifice and so on. You need to really weigh, is this the way that I want to go? Because um, it's challenging and there are few people who go that way. It's kind of heartbreaking in a way, isn't it? Now, something that I want to point out just to sort of, um, you know, interrupt this broadcast to tell you a few other things you may not know. Uh, uh, some of you are aware of the concept uh, that's in, in Swedenborg's theology, which is that heaven, uh, a, a lot of Christians for some reason fell into thinking that angels are a separately created race. And we've dealt with this in other Bible studies, but uh, they're not. They're, they're just your grandparents, great-grandparents, they're, they're ex-people from this earth. That's who, Everybody who's in heaven, that's who that is. Everybody who's in hell. There's no separately created race. There's no Satan who fell from, you know, that's a misunderstanding of Isaiah chapter 14. We talked about that in Bible study too, once upon a time back there. Sorry, I don't have the cross-references for you. But the um, uh, it's important to realize too, and sort of one sign of this, just to give you one scripture if you want to look at one, is that uh, in the book of Revelation, when John tries to bow down before an angel, the angel says, don't do it. I'm your, I'm your fellow companion. I'm your, your brother. You know, worship the Lord. Uh, there are a number of indications. There's Judges 13 where 
Manoah and his wife see this angel and they keep referring to him a man and they ask him, are you the man who did this? And the angel says, yes, I am. You know, in other words, angels are people. They're just people after death. They're good people after death and evil spirits and Satans and devils and demons and all the rest of it are evil people after death. That's, that's the only people who are up there. That's why I'm talking about us making a choice about heaven or hell that's what this is about. Another thing that's good to know that, again, I don't have time to go into this evening, is that our transition at death is immediate, personal, and permanent. And there are various scriptural stories that show this, and I've done various Bible studies on the past and life after death, that, that demonstrate this one smoking gun passage, I think is Luke 23, where the Lord says, today you will be with me in paradise. There's no gap there, or the fact that... Um, you know, he says he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living, not of the dead. Uh, in other words, Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob are still up there in the transfiguration. He sees Moses and Elijah. They're Moses and Elijah. You know, in the Old Testament, he's, they see Samuel rising up out of the ground. He's still wearing the same type of clothes. He's still alive. The transition at death is immediate, personal, and permanent. And so when Scripture is talking about heaven and hell, it's talking about us and our future, our immediate future. When we pass on, we're going to have this choice uh, to sort of finalize between heaven and hell, and that's what it's talking about. And let's read one more scripture while we're up here in the New Testament. Let's go to John chapter 10. The Lord makes it clear what He wants us to choose, but He knows it's kind of a long shot. At chapter 10, verse. let's start at verse... Um, Oh, verse 7, I guess. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Mm. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and kill and to destroy. And why did the Lord come? I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. That's what the Lord is about, to choose life. And the Lord's whole purpose is to give us life and to give us more abundant life. That's what he's doing. So he wants us to choose life. So what is this life like? What is this angelic life like? I want to look at some characteristics. I've put these together, so we'll be jumping all over the scriptures to look at these different characteristics. Uh, so please bear with me, friends. Uh, let's go to Matthew, to the left there, to chapter 18. These give sort of subtle hints sometimes of the characteristics. What I'm talking about now, when the Lord says choose life, what exactly is that life that we would be choosing? Part of what I'm trying to drive at tonight is that really in the way that that scripture lays it out, the choice should be a no-brainer. The difference is vast. Heaven is way better, and we should all totally be choosing it. We're idiots if we don't. And yet, it's a difficult choice. And the Lord says, well, you got to weigh it, you know, because there's a cost. It's costly to do the heaven route. And that's why the Lord was coming into this world to plead with us to get there. So let's look a little bit at what is being offered. What exactly is the nature of that life? So I want to write on the board, if I may, just the word life up at the top. And then let's look at some characteristics of life. 
In Matthew 18, uh, let's start at the first verse there. Okay. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is great? So we're, is the context heaven? Is it pretty clear? Kingdom we're of in heaven. the context of the kingdom of heaven. And we're talking about who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So what is the characteristics of people who are in the kingdom of heaven? Okay, read on. Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them. Why would he do that? Verse 3. And said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Aha! So, like little Children is one of the characteristics which I would reword as innocent. We need to be like little children. That's a quality uh, that angels have in heaven. That's, that's one of the life, you know, that's a characteristic of the life that we're being offered here. And what does it say in verse 4 there? Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humble. Okay, so one of the characteristics of the people who live in heaven is that they are humble, right? And they humbled themselves. They weren't sort of crushed by life experiences or whatever. They, they humbled themselves. And uh, look down at verse 10 there. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Aha. Uh -huh. So I would put here that they behold and face God. And that specific mention of the Father is because the Father in Scripture means the divine love. So they, they see the divine love. That's one of the characteristics that they have. They're, so children, their angels always, it doesn't say intermittently or occasionally or something, they always behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. So beholding and facing God, and particularly, I'll put in here, divine love. That's the Father. That's what that means. Okay, in the, in the language of correspondences. Good. So we've already off to a good little start here, aren't we? To be like little children, to be innocent, to be humble, to behold the face of God. And what would the opposite of those things be? Not to be innocent, right? To be wicked and horrible and conniving or something. And to be arrogant and to have no clue who God is and not be thinking about divine love. Fair enough? Okay. Okay. Have, let's jump over to John. So turn to the right. Go to John chapter 8. As I say, we're jumping all over the place here to look at these different characteristics. Verses 34 to 36. Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave of sin. Interesting, that introduces a different element. Like before it said evil and curses, right? And death it called it. Here it says it's also slavery. Go on. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Yes. 
I'll just write free indeed. Great freedom. Doesn't look, doesn't look too bad. Looks good. Let's turn back to Matthew chapter 25. We probably don't have time tonight to read this whole wonderful story at the end, starting in verse 31. But this is about the sheep and the goats, and a lot of you will be familiar with the story, I imagine. Uh, let's just read uh, from 33 there. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Well, what is that kingdom? Inherit the kingdom? Isn't that the kingdom of God? Isn't that the kingdom of heaven? Okay, who is it who is able to inherit the kingdom of heaven? For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Yes, and it's very clear as the parable goes on that the people who are then told to depart into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, are people who didn't do these things. They weren't loving and kind to their neighbor, right? And they didn't realize that God had a stake in it. And they said, we, we didn't know, you know, when did we not do that to you? And he said, the fact that you didn't do it to the least of these, my brethren, you didn't do it to me. And these, in verse 46, shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life everlasting. So um, isn't that sort of a clear choice? Again, here's, here's life, here's death, you know, here's life eternal, here's everlasting punishment. And one of the dividing lines is whether you are loving and kind to your neighbor. So are you loving of God? Are you loving and kind to your neighbor? These are characteristics. Okay, let's go back to Psalms. So the middle of your Bible there, go to the Psalms, Psalm 103. Verse 20, I forget how this goes in your Bible, dear reader. Hmm. Different than yours? I don't know. Start at 20. Yeah. Bless the Lord, you his angels, who excel in strength. Ah, there it is. Who do? The Lord's angels excel uh -huh. in strength. If I'm not mistaken, I get the vague impression from that scripture that the angels excel in strength. They are strong. They're, they're powerful right? Wow, that's good. That's nice. They're powerful. They excel in strength. That's their nature. And tell me a little more about that. Who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Yes, that's right. And look back, if you will, this is just maybe an odd reference, but back five books of Moses to Deuteronomy again, the fifth book of Moses, chapter 32. Not long after where we started in chapter 30, there's this whole list of blessings and curses. Blessings if you do good and curses if you do badly. And I just thought this was relevant here in verse 30. Deuteronomy 32, verse 30. How 
could one chase a thousand and two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them? Yes, this is a little image of the power that angels have that one angel can put 10,000 devils to flight. Two, you know, or, two, or a thousand. Two can put 10,000. This is the kind of power that they have. It's just another little indication. The angels are like children. They're innocent. They're humble. And yet they're powerful. Usually you don't, those things don't go together, do they? Like childlike, but in, excelling in strength, you know, and able to rout thousands of evil spirits. But they have both of those characteristics. They're tremendously free. They're loving and kind. They're starting to sound a little attractive up in here. Um, okay, let's look at Judges. So if you turn to the right through Joshua, get to Judges chapter 5. This is sort of, maybe I should have had this earlier under beholding the face of God. But look at 531. I love this little phrase here. It's interesting to me. Thus, let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. Interesting. So it's saying that the image of the sun, it's aligning the image of the sun with the idea of love, of loving God, right? Let those who love the Lord be as the sun when it shines in its strength. Okay, now can you jump with me back up into Matthew chapter 13 to verse 43 there, Matthew 13, 43. Because I just want to read a couple of sun passages here. Thir oh, that's Mark, sorry. Matthew 13, 43. So loving the Lord is likened to the sun shining in its strength. Okay. And then in verse 43, we see this. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Yes. Aren't we talking about the righteous here? Aren't we talking about angels, good, good people? And they will shine as the sun. Well, what that means is that they love, they shine with the love of God. They shine with this love of the Lord. That's what radiates from them. Oh, just one more scripture like that is Revelation 12. You don't even have to go there if you don't want to. Uh, you know that there's an image, do you not, friends, of a woman clothed with the sun. This is a picture of people who are responding to the Lord, that they are surrounded with this love of God. That's what it means to be clothed with the sun. Uh, okay, so I'm going to put as a separate entry on here, I guess, just loving the Lord, you know, I almost want to say um, beaming with it, you know, just radiating from their faces or something. The righteous shall shine like the sun. Let those who love the Lord be as the sun shining in its strength. Well, that's, that's nice. It might be worth giving up a bad habit or two, you know, to acquire that attribute. It might not be <laughs> such a bad exchange. Uh, have a look at Luke's turn to the right to Luke 19. I want to talk about another attribute. Just got a couple of scriptures on this. Look at Luke 19, verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace in heaven. Peace in heaven. So we have innocence, humility, freedom, loving the Lord. Peace. Now, friends... 
when you're weighing up whether you can build your tower, do take peace into account. That is very, that's a very desirable characteristic, I would say. A very desirable experience. Something with which we spend much of our lives not being familiar or immersed in. Wouldn't you say? <laughs> and so just take that into the equation when you're trying to calculate whether you want to take the journey or you don't. Think about the fact that they have peace up there. Okay, let's go to Isaiah. So if you go to the middle of your Bible and you turn to the right, you get to Isaiah. And let's look at Isaiah chapter 30. We'll just, this is a couple more peace passages that came to mind. They don't exactly use the word peace, but they sort of expand it a little bit. And uh, it's in the form of a criticism of people who aren't doing this. But look at 30 verse 15. For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. Uh-huh. Returning, returning to the Lord, and rest you shall be saved. And isn't the Sabbath a day of, of rest, a day of peace? Okay, go on. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. Okay, peace. I think I'll put in parentheses quietness and confidence. Mm -hmm. Oh, quietness. What would that be like? Wow, the noise in your head not dinning constantly. Uh, look at Isaiah chapter 32, verse 17. Another little statement about peace. The work of righteousness will be peace. Oh, nice. And the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. For how long? Forever. For a week or something? Forever. Every other year? No, <laughs> forever. So... Try to take that into account when you do the calculation. Sit down with your calculator. I don't know if your calculator does eternal peace on it, mm. but type that in and see what that's worth to you. What is eternal peace worth? It might have a certain value for you. Let me just dip for a moment. We're mostly looking at the positive here, but can you turn all the way to the beginning of your Bible? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. I want to go to Leviticus chapter 26 because I want to look briefly at just a tiny little window on what the opposite of peace looks like. Just in case you've forgotten that lack of peace you had moments ago, uh, this may remind us what, what the lack of peace is like. Uh, Leviticus 26, let's look at verses 36 and 37. And this is in a list of curses, by the way. And Cursing, blessing is life, you know, that's good. Curses, evil, death, and here's in curses. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee. Oh. They shall flee as though fleeing from a sword. A little leaf shall... can send you running, right? <laughs> okay. And they shall fall when no one pursues. Yeah. This is talking about blinding terror, isn't it? Maybe you've experienced that at night. You hear something before you, behind you, and all of a sudden, like, you goosebumps and everything. Look at verse 37. They shall stumble over one another, as it were before a sword, when no one pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. See? No peace and no power. And it's said that one of these angels can drive a thousand, you know, and, and two of them can put 10,000 to flight. Well, this is talking about the, on the other end of that equation. You have no power. Okay? So just... 
Put that into your calculator to figure out the calculation. You know, do, do you want to do this? Is this worth it to have these attributes? Is it worth a little self-sacrifice and discomfort to get there? Okay, we've just got a few more. Turn to the right. Go through Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges first. And I want to go to 2 Samuel. Just a little verse here. 2 Samuel chapter 14. Just a little statement. There's lots more that I could bring out of this kind. Here somebody is likening someone else to the angel of God and mentions a particular characteristic that the angel of God has. Look in verse 20 there. To bring about this change of affairs, your servant Joab has done this thing, but my Lord is wise. Wise. How wise? According to the wisdom of the angel of God, to know everything that is in the earth. Okay. Let's add the word wisdom. And that... Wisdom, he's talking about, is approaching omniscience, right? To know everything that goes on on the planet. Uh, okay, not bad. What would you pay? Wisdom, innocence, freedom, power, loving God, loving your neighbor, being innocent and humble, all that. Not bad. Um, okay, and uh, let's end with one more. Can you go to the far end of the New Testament Almost into Revelation, I want to go to 1 John. That's just shortly before there's Jude, and then you go back to John. 1 John chapter 4. After Peter, that's right. 1 John 4, pick up at 16. Let's go from 16 to 18. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Yeah, that's what we're reading about here, right? Love of God, the love of the neighbor, okay? Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Okay, there's in addition to power, I would say boldness, okay? Because as he is, so are we in this world. Go on. There is no fear in love, Oh, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. Okay, fearless. Now, what would you pay, friends? Giving up the fear? Not bad. Fearless. Bold. Right? Mm -hmm. mm. He who fears is not made perfect in love. That's right. Okay. Uh, let's see. Let's go back. I think there's one more scripture I wanted to read. Uh, in the middle of your Bible, Psalm 84. Thank you for your patience. I just, I like that list. That's kind of a fun list right there of, of here's what you get. So when you're thinking about building your tower, when you're thinking about going to war against hell in yourself, think about that good thing that you will get from doing that. Uh, look at verses 10 and 11. Another little, you know, it's just a plug, a little ad for heaven. <laughs> for a day in your courts is better than a thousand. Better than a thousand elsewhere, meaning, you know, just one day in the Lord's courts. Go on. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. That's right. Better to just, just get, a, get a grunt job or something <laughs> than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Go on. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. 
The Lord will give grace and glory. Mm. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Okay, so I'll just say every good thing at the bottom where you can't even read it anymore. Okay, he'll give us everything good. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Okay, um, so... What I want to tell you is, is um, sort of a strange analogy here. In a way, you'd say, okay, well, I want to, you know, either you can be wicked and terrified and powerless and pathetic, you know, or you can be innocent and humble and loving and free and powerful and uh, peaceful and wise and bold and fearless and have every other good thing you can possibly think of. In fact, when you really think about what uh, Swedenborg says about heaven, it's just a wonderful picture of being in a whole society of other people who love the Lord and everybody's growing in their own unique way and you work together so they benefit you, the enrichment, being with a whole bunch of people who want to share all their joy and all their love with you. They'd rather you have it than they have it, and you'd rather they have it than you have it. And there's way too much love gets overflowing as a result. And um, uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful existence to be in. And hell is a place of frustration where you're thwarted. Sometimes when you act out, you get tormented for a while until you finally figure out, I guess I can't really act out. But you'd still like to when you weigh them up, it's like it really ought to be a no-brainer. Hell has no product. It's got nothing. I was trying to think of an analogy, and this may seem a little strange, friends. See if you can hang in with me here. I was trying to describe, see, what I want to try to capture with this analogy, and it may be more complicated than just saying it, but uh, the analogy is to try to suggest two things that look almost the same, one of which is just absolutely, infinitely superior to the other. Like it shouldn't be a choice, but for some reason to us, we really do sit there and scratch our heads and think, well, I don't know. You know, I really like loving myself and I like loving the world. And even though they frustrate me and frustrate everybody else and my life doesn't work, mm, I'd hate to give those up. Uh, it, you know, it seems like, well, I don't know if I could really go with the Lord. I mean, is that going to be any good? You know, is heaven going to be any good? The, the analogy that came to mind is that on this particular planet, we have a nice little analogy right in our sky. This bizarre thing, no other planet has this. I don't think. I don't know them all. But I think there's no other planet in the whole universe that has a situation where our sun is exactly the same size and shape in the sky as our moon. It just so happens that the moon is 400 times smaller and 400 times closer than the Earth in terms of its diameter. Uh, so it looks exactly the same size. So the choice between the moon and the sun would be like, well, it's kind of six of one, half dozen of the other. You know, they look like almost exactly the same size. So my silly analogy that I was thinking of was that uh, we already did in real life, we derotated the moon so the same side of the moon always faces us. That's why there's a dark side of the moon, meaning a side we can't see. So uh, over time, we may get derotated relative to the sun. So picture a situation where the sun is always on one side of the planet and it never goes around to the other side of the planet because we always stay on that same side. So there's a sunny side of the planet and then there's a moony side. Like the moon is always on the other side and it's always a full moon because the sun is opposite it. 
So you, have, you can either choose, now everybody has to choose, do you want to live on the moon side of the earth or the sun side of the earth? They look kind of the same. You know, they're almost the same thing. The only significant difference <laughs> is that the sun has 35 billion times the mass of the moon, and it's a great fire, an inextinguishable fire that radiates a tremendous amount of life and energy and keeps the planet alive, and the moon doesn't do squat. <laughs> It, it, it has nothing. All it has is a little reflected light from the sun, which is just fortunate because the sun is choosing to shine on it, so it can radiate a little light. But if you're feeling sneaky, you like breaking into houses, or something, maybe you'd rather be on the side that has the moon. Only problem is you're going to go into permanent winter. Uh, you're going to be freezing. Nothing will ever grow. You know, it's no contest. It's like who would ever choose the moon over the sun under those circumstances? What I'm trying to get across is they may look alike, but the difference between heaven and hell is vast. The only reason that hell has a shot with us is that it's millions of times closer to us. And they have great recruiters that start early and they get they got the suit and they come up and they're smooth and they, you know, and they talk to you early in your life and try to, can I tell you, have you really, have you ever considered the, the, the advantages of, of being hellish? And um, they try to pitch you and get you hooked early. Here, would you like to try a sample? They always give you a sample, you know. And they're always talking about something instant, like here's instant gratification. Whereas heaven's always talking about, well, if you walk this difficult, narrow path that not many people are on and went through something akin to a crucifixion, you know, it's kind of a torment of the heart, I could eventually give you these wonderful things, you know, <laughs> forever, you know. Well, dude, he's got cheesecake right over there right now. I don't know. You know, uh, I would... <laughs> uh, that just looks better to me right now. I'm having to be hungry right now. Um, it's kind of pathetic. Like, to look at it from the Lord's point of view, it just must be horrifying that people, that that broad is that way to destruction, that so many people choose hell when it's got nothing. It's got nothing to offer. They don't love you. They're not going to take care of you. One additional point, if you can stand this, good friends. Swedenborg talks at one point, I never remember reading about this before, but he makes a very interesting point that he said there's really two kinds of judgment that people go through after they die. There's the judgment of good or goodness and the judgment of truth. If you have any goodness, we talked about the church of John last time, if you have any goodness in you, if you've been in Matthew 25 doing anything for the other people, whoever they are. If you've got any goodness in, at all, you get to go in the door marked the judgment of goodness because you have some goodness in you. Now, the judgment of goodness is that the Lord overlooks your faults and your problems and He welcomes you and there's a whole family and, 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 and it's just great. You don't even have to worry about it. But I did this when I was young. I know, it doesn't matter. We, we don't even care about that. But... If you don't have any goodness in you, that means you're not in the Lord, the Lord is not in you, then I'm afraid, friends, we're subject to what's called the judgment of truth. And the judgment of truth is like some border guard or like somebody who's investigating you, see if you had a terrorist background or something like that. The judgment of truth looks at everything you ever did and everything you ever said and why you said it and why you did that. And there is nobody, Swedenborg says, on the planet who can pass that test. Everybody flunks.
Everybody flunks the judgment of truth. So if you have no goodness in you, I'm afraid you're going down. You can't help it. You fall into the judgment of truth. You're, in, you're on the moon side of the planet, and it's going to be winter. It's going to be cold. It's going to be bad. Um, the Lord is so kind, and He reaches out as far as He can possibly reach, and He bends over backwards and is always wishes to save all. He says to the Pharisees, how often did I want to gather you, you know, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you, but you wouldn't. He wants to take everybody in. But if we don't have a single thing in us that answers to what the Lord is trying to put out, then we, there's no place else for us to go but to that judgment of truth. And it's harsh, and you get, you get condemned. You know? And nobody, it says, who shall, if you, Thou, O Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? Answer, nobody. You know, if, if you fall under the judgment of truth, it's bad. It's, go with the good side. Get in the good line. All you got to do is do a few things for your neighbor Maybe shun an evil now and then. You know, the Lord is very merciful. He wants people in this church of John, this church of love and doing and humility. Don't these sound like awesome people to be around? It would just be fun to be there. That's the life. The Lord pleads with us. Choose, please, choose life. Thank you, friends. Can you join me in a closing prayer? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we thank you for that blasting eternal love, far more eternal than the physical sun that's up in the sky. Your love will hold us forever if we will only turn to you, Lord. You set before us that blessing and the curse. You explain it all in your word. You leave us in our freedom. It has to be our own free choice. Help us, Lord. We wish to choose you. We wish to, wish to be with you. We wish to have those blessings that you have to offer. It's so much better than the alternative that it's unbelievable. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy, for your grace, for your blessings, for your truth, for your kindness, for your love. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends. It really is worth a little discomfort. Amen. <laughs>